Hey guys, welcome to episode 149 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we want to thank you all for everything you've done for us. You are always so amazing and we love all of our listeners and we appreciate everything you guys do. From just being here, listening to us, taking the time to spend time with us. And to reviewing the podcast, following us on social media, we thank you so much. Seriously. I mean, without you guys, we wouldn't be here. I know we say that all the time. We but would it, just be talking to we ourselves. We would just talk to ourselves. Um, you know, in the beginning, I have to tell you, that's pretty much what we did, that right? That is what we did. Like, we would we just put out episodes and uh, just listen to ourselves. And five years in, if that was still what was happening, we were just talking to ourselves, I'd be like, I think it's time to throw in the towel. <laughs> Probably. But I think there would be a part of me that would still want to try <laughs> We're still holding Just, yeah, on. I still like like listening to myself, I guess. I don't know. Listen, we are nowhere near other true crime podcasts, but we appreciate every single one of you. And we'll never, as long as you're listening, we'll never stop. It's very true. And according to John... Even if you stop, we'll still be going, I guess. <laughs> well, you know what it is? I feel like just as much as like it's fun for you guys to listen to us, we find it fun to talk to you guys. And interact. And yeah. interact. And I think that's what makes us also continue doing what we're doing because it's so much fun for us. And it's so cool to hear from people, not just all over the country, but all over the world. That's pretty awesome. It's true. It's really nice. And uh, we another group of people we'd like to thank are our Patreon supporters. We love you guys. And it's through your support that we're also able to continue the podcast and make it better. So if you joined Patreon since the last episode, please stay tuned till the end where we're going to thank you personally. And hopefully I don't butcher your name. But if I do, let me know and I will say it again like I always do. And if you'd like to join our Patreon page, you could do so at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. And there you'll get two full length bonus episodes of us talking to ourselves. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> okay. So I feel like I say this a lot, but I super mean it today. This is a wild ride. So you're going to have to buckle in. Already done. Click. <laughs> We're ready. So John, are you ready to hear something crazy? Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm buckled. I think everyone else is. <laughs> in the late spring of 1987, a body was found in the attic of a burning church in Nashville, Tennessee. The detectives investigating the crime knew that they were looking for a heartless killer, especially when they saw the state of the body. But what they were unaware of was just how diabolical their murderer was. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another. Are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. On June 16, 1987, detectives were called to the scene of a fire at the Emanuel Church of Christ Oneness Pentecostal in Nashville, Tennessee. The fire department had been able to extinguish the flames, but not before irreparable damage had been done to the building and the items within. The firefighters were unfortunately used to seeing burned bodies in the wreckage of fires, but they knew right away that what they had seen in the attic of this church during their walkthrough had not been the result of the flames that they'd been battling. This person had battled something else. When the detectives, along with their crime scene technicians, got there, 
The inside of the building was still smoking from the fire and water dripped from the ceilings. It was clear that the place of worship had once been a beautiful building. High ceilings, chandeliers, musical instruments, and Christian relics. However, now everything was charred. The chandeliers had fallen and began to melt. Nothing would ever be the same. In an interview, the detective said that, you know, he'd been in burned buildings before, but this was different because it was a church. And seeing the steam rise from the pews, it was just an eerie sight. And something that made it even more creepy was the fact that he knew he was there because he was going to be investigating what the firefighters thought was a murder. Yeah, that's interesting. There's there's so many um, things to look for, I guess, if you're like the uh, a fire or chief firefighter or a fire marshal. Like you're going to be looking at if there was like accelerants used or, you know, uh, maybe like pinpoint the cause of, of the fire, maybe electrical or but in this case, it's kind of odd. If there's a body in there, <laughs> right? you know, so this is actually pretty interesting. But, yeah, I think the location, I think, makes it eerie because it is a church and a place of worship. Oh, totally. Because it implies something, especially in the South and the history that they have, even though that's not necessarily tied in with this. But when you think about a church building, you associate it with community, belonging, love, And when that building is set ablaze, it's almost like an attack on the community. Yes. Also, though, now, if we're dealing with someone that did this, obviously, let's say they killed somebody and now they set the church on fire. Was this a deliberate um, place, like a a, a location picked on purpose to send a message? Because that's what I'm getting from this already. Is, Is this a message being sent not only by killing somebody, but where it was started and where it was took place. And that's usually the thought process when there is uh, attack on a church of any kind at any time period. Yeah. And that's why the investigators here are going to have to work hands in hand with the fire department to find out, you know, not just who killed this body that's going to be upstairs, but was this fire set deliberately? And we know that, you know, nothing really gets rid of evidence like fire. It's true. When there was this church, um, was it like a wood church? Like it, like it was made out of wood? Yes, it's an old Pentecostal church. So that's like they speak in tongues okay. kind of church. All right. Yes. And it's old, right? Yeah. Like this is a very old church. Well, I mean, not necessarily. They have a lot of funds and it's a really big congregation. So, I mean, the it's not, it's been there for a really long time, but the upkeep has been phenomenal. Okay. Okay. Off topic really quickly. It's about wood. Okay. But it, but it's actually interesting to this case, though, okay? All right. So just anybody... I'm, I'm along for this ride. I, I mean, listen, just like Kay likes to give history lessons, I know a lot of random facts. So I'm just going to spew one really quickly, okay? Okay. So I didn't know this until I learned this because who the hell knows about wood? Like, who cares about wood, right? But... Carpenters. Well, yeah, carpenters, right? Okay. <laughs> anyway, so obviously different wood, different trees when they're cut obviously have different ways that they burn. Some burn hotter, some burn longer or shorter. It's all different. Um, Some have like, there's more sap in certain trees, so it might burn a certain way and there might be more smoke than others when it's burned. It's all very interesting, but this is the craziest part. If you were to take a two by four or any kind of cut back from, let's say the fifties, let's say, and then up the same two by four nowadays, do you know that the wood is so different and has less rings in the wood, which makes it less dense? 
Like the wood now is so it's so it lights up faster. It's just really, Flammable. for lack of a better term, it's just crappy in comparison to old cuts of wood. Interesting. Um, and I I try to like understand this. I I could be wrong. This is not a fact. 100%, but I think it's because the trees over time of being planted and then cut has reduced the strength and the rings within the tree. Right, because for every year there's a ring in Right. There. So over time... Shout out to my 7th grade science class <laughs> for that. Yeah, but I, I, apparently over time these trees are getting weaker because they're being planted and cut shorter or too, something yeah, like that. Yeah, too short in their lifespan. Yes. Yeah, so that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, so that's why like new construction of wood um buildings or whatever can light up faster kind of like what happened in jersey remember that one place down uh like closer towards uh the city where you the, the whole entire apartment complex just lit up in the flames. avalon yeah well so, yeah the builders yeah. right so like that that up yeah but anyway that's why because the wood is so bad in comparison to interesting um, yeah because now they tr- they treat it, they do a bunch of things to try to strengthen the wood. But yeah, old wood back in the day, like things that like farms were like farmhouses were built out of, they're so durable. That's why some of them are still standing today. Interesting. Yeah. So see, look, you can come here for your true crime and wood facts. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Anyway, but that's uh, it's something to consider because you might find something within the wreckage of if it's old because right. it'll be still intact. Well, I think that it's really interesting that you mentioned two by fours because they come into play. Oh, see, look at that. Look at it's like you are psychic. It's actually terrifying sometimes. <laughs> I, I listen. I don't try. <laughs> I don't try. I just show up. I just show. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so the attic of the church looked like you would expect storage boxes, items for Christmas, but one area was different. In one corner, there was piled up debris, two by fours, plywood. And other building materials. And all of this debris, wood, covered a rolled up carpet. Okay. And from the rolled up carpet, you could see that there was a body inside. Okay. Interesting. So this is where the body had been found. And the detectives, they are going to just peel up the carpet a little bit. And what is exposed to them was a human leg. And from the size of it, it looked like their victim was an adult male. The scene was pictured and the items atop processed. And then the rug was pulled kind of to a separate location in the attic because they're going to have to unroll the rug to reveal the body. The detectives, with the help of the techs, pulled the carpet out and began to unravel it. But nothing could have prepared them for what was inside. It was indeed the body of an adult male, but he was missing his right arm from the elbow down, and areas of his body had been slashed so violently that pieces of flesh still hung from him, and he was missing his head. Oh, okay. Uh, now, uh, did, is the head somewhere within the wreckage of the of the fire? Yeah, I mean, okay. once they... No, it's not. Oh. But... That's exactly the thought process of the detectives. They're like, okay, where are these missing body parts? Are they in this location? And once they kind of got past the shock of just the last thing they thought was this person's going to be decapitated, his arm's going to be cut off, and he's going to be brutally mutilated. So they search around the attic to see, like, had this horrific event, the 
mutilation of this corpse taken place in the attic and they realized quickly that the mutilation did not take place in the attic or there was no evidence that it did because there was no excessive amounts of blood anywhere and they also could not find the arm or the head. So their thought yeah. process was it didn't take place in the attic. Now this there could be a there could be a couple of things here. Two two theories right now off the bat is look, if if detectives are saying that it didn't take place there, then it probably it probably didn't, right? Because there would be some sort of evidence that you could see. But we are we are talking about a fire where evidence can be some evidence can be burned or trails can be burned. So it's harder to kind of figure out what's going on. If this person is somebody that's extremely and highly sadistic, right, it could have been done there, but they took the head with them or they took body parts with them. Yeah. That's a possibility. I'm just going to throw it out there. And the second one is if it didn't, then this is somebody that had a way or somewhere else to take to do this, but then knew that he would have the opportunity to bring that body there. At the church. Yeah. Now, this is the body of what we will find out is an adult male, obviously. it's Well, that's pretty obvious. But it would be really difficult to have them to carry that body up the stairs of the attic. I mean, we're talking about the, like, f- drop down stairs. I mean, yeah. But if we're talking about uh, maybe a, a decently sized man who is maybe a little athletic or, or strong, he might be able to might carry able a body up it. there. I mean, I, I used to carry heavy tools up a ladder with and then uh, climb with one hand. Wow, that's so cool. Okay, stop. But I'm being <laughs> honest. Like, some of the tools that I was carrying were, like, over 100 pounds. So if it's, like, a 100-pound, let's say, 150-pound man, let's say, you can totally 100%. No, this was a big guy. Yeah? So, like, it would be difficult to cl- carry him up the stairs. Okay. In it, But I like what you said about... We don't know what if the dismemberment happened on the first floor and we just don't know because it's been burned so badly. The areas where all the blood was is gone. Yeah, I mean, I could see that being the case. So that makes it really difficult for investigators to find out where this took place. But from what they could see, it didn't look like anything like that really took place in the attic. Another thing they did, you know, from there, they did like an extended search of the entire church and they found that there was no forced entry. So they're thinking that their killer was someone who was either familiar with the church or that their victim was someone who was in the church and they let this killer in. Yeah. Could be somebody part of the congregation. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing with churches, too. I mean, they're inviting so usually doors aren't locked so i don't see it as being like a weird sign that there's no forced entry because usually churches are open or they had access to the church correct so the second thought process came from the only clue that the detectives had to work with the the man had been dressed and the belt buckle that he had on was a black belt and the buckle had an initial T on it. They learned quickly from others at the scene that the pastor of the church was named David Terry. So immediately their thought was that someone wanted to steal money from the church and they'd murdered the pastor to do so. But why the brutality? 
And now what they would have to do before they went down any avenue of investigation or thought is that they would need to confirm with the family that this was, in fact, David Terry. Now, just a reminder, it's 1987, so it's not as easy to identify a body, especially when David Terry, they know his fingerprints weren't on, on record. Right. I mean, you, pro- you at that point, you would just have to work off of uh, if anybody has report- reported him missing or anything like that. Right. So the detectives went to the home of David Terry, and before they left, they had received the lowdown from other elders in the church, who obviously came to the scene when they heard the church was burning. David Terry was loved by the congregation. He was the man of the church. He had a very strong following of believers who loved the messages that he preached. He was a talented man, both during his sermons and when he would sing. But what he was known most for was his caring nature towards the community, how he tried to uplift each and every one of his congregants. Um, Like he was the guy who, if anyone needed help, he was there for them. He also helped them gain financial assistance. When his congregants were in the hospital, he always went to visit. So he was that kind of pastor. He really helped the church grow, and they couldn't think of anyone who would have wanted to hurt him. So next came the hardest part of any investigation, informing the family. The 44-year-old David Terry had lived with his wife, Brenda, and their three sons close to the church. So they got there pretty quickly, and they had the difficult task of letting his wife know that a body was found in the church, but it would be incredibly hard to ID because the body was missing its head and they did bring the belt that they found on their victim and they asked her you know if it looked familiar to her and the entire time the detectives were speaking to Brenda she was really distraught crying uncontrollably but when they showed her the belt that's when she got hysterical and she told them yes that it was familiar to her that had been the belt that she got David for Father's Day the previous year. That's really sad. Yeah. I, I mean, the only thing here is I would have started with, hey, we're conducting an investigation. It pretty much, does this belt look familiar? Instead of, hey, uh, we found a body in a, uh, a burn with its head cut off. Uh, we just want to know if this belt look familiar to you. Like, that's yeah. probably not what you want to start with. Well, I think that showing her the belt, then she would have know what happened so i think they wanted to brace her first i I mean i guess i would have just said hey this is about look familiar first yeah but then if someone just like was like this is does this shoe look familiar and i'm like oh my god it's my husband's (laughs) shoe why is his shoe off you're like you go kind of crazy and then yeah and they want to be able to talk to her you know so true no you're right you know what you're right looking back at it just now you're (laughs) right you're probably right and honestly there's no easy way to break that to somebody so you know So eventually the detectives were able to calm her down enough to ask her questions about her husband. She stated that the last time she saw her husband, she was saying goodbye to him because he was headed off on a fishing trip with one of his friends, a younger man, he was 32 years old, named James Matheny. And that's why she didn't get initially alarmed when she heard that the church was on fire because she didn't think her husband was there. She thought he was on a fishing trip, so it wasn't weird that he wasn't home and he wouldn't have been at the church because he's out with James. 
So, okay. So that's why she wasn't there. Like most of the, the elders of the church and their families went to the church, but she thought her husband was fine. So she stayed back with her children. Okay. So now, I mean, at least we have some kind of background here. We can be like, okay, maybe we need to go talk to this other person, James, to see, hey, have you heard from David? Or, you know, this is what's going on. Did you hear about the church? Like investigate that lead now. Exactly. Which would be the best thing to do. So... Matheny, she said, was somebody that her husband had become close with. He had been counseling him, like really helping him through a rough time in his life. And he's really kind of cleaned up his act, I guess you could say. Um, David Terry had actually given James Matheny a job at the church as a handyman. Okay. So this immediately piques their interest, right? Here are two men that did have access to this church. He's a handyman. So in the attic with all the debris over him, they're like, this is a little interesting. So we really need to go down, like you said, this avenue of what's going on with James Matheny and where is he? So not only had James Matheny been the last man to see their victim alive, he had complete access to the church and the building materials that had been piled over the body. Without a doubt, their next visit would have to be the Matheny residence. Matheny was recently divorced, and he lived not far from the church in an apartment complex. When they arrived at the scene, they found Teresa Seagraves, and this is the ex-wife of James Matheny. She had gone over to his apartment to see if he was okay because she had heard about the fire at the church. She knew that he worked there and, well, she was actually the one who reached out to David Terry to get him the job there. So she just wanted to make sure he was okay. So she told detectives that she knocked at the door, but when she didn't receive an answer, she went inside. She had a key and she thought, you know, whatever, it's fine. The two of them actually had a good relationship post-divorce and they shared a son together. So... I don't want to say it was an amicable divorce, but we'll get into it. But she really cared about him a lot. That's uh, I feel like that's very uncommon. Yes, it is. Um, but he wasn't there, she told them. She said, though, that he wasn't there. And she didn't touch anything in the apartment because she found the state of it to be very odd. She said his bed had not been slept in and everything else was kind of neatly in its place, which was very not like her ex-husband. She told the detectives that she had no clue where he might be because she really didn't know about his whereabouts. She just went to go check on him when she heard about the church fire. I do find this a little bizarre, though, that we're we're not able to locate James, the only guy that would know about David Terry's like like what happened there. Correct. And I'm also thinking now, what could be motive to kill to kill a reverend? Like, I, I mean, a pastor. Oh, I'm sorry. It's OK. I said Reverend. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, well, just, it's okay. fine. So what what you gotta think though, what could a motive be? D- did David Terry know, uh, have something on James that or would have find something out? Yeah. Did he find something out? Um was it re- you know, was it like retribution for something that David Terry might have done? I mean, these are all things that we have to think about, right? I mean because uh, it doesn't seem that they had any bad blood, but I mean, maybe they did. It's all very interesting. But where are, where is this guy? I don't know. And another thing, actually, I just want to point this out. 
Okay. Hopefully, don't, don't answer me on this because I, I don't. Want, I don't want to ruin the story. I just want to. I want to put it out there. Red oh. flag. This. The head's missing. In 1987, did they have the ability to look at dental records? Oh yeah. Okay, so that's kind of weird. That means that you thought whoever did whoever did this thought, I have to take the head. And the and I guess I don't know why one hand, because technically. They're missing their arm, one of their arms. Yeah. But I guess the fire might have did in the other one. But they took a fingerprint and they took dental records, which are the only ways to technically identify a body on a biological level. Yeah. So why? In 1987. That means they know that they need to do that. Right. So this was a planned thing. I think so. It takes a while to remove a head. I'm I'm just saying those two things... It's it's alarming. It's a red flag. Okay. That means that they planned this and that they knew that they needed to take those objects. They needed to take a fingerprint and they needed to take the the uh, no way to identify the teeth. So you're saying that this is something that really should be thought about in the investigation. Why did the killer want to hide the identification of the, the victim? Yeah. Okay. There has to be something with that because now we're identifying a body on literally the basis that they had a belt buckle on. Correct. And I think that that's not enough. Like, yeah. Well, in the beginning phases of the investigation, that's what they're going to do. Then, obviously, an autopsy will try to reveal it as best as they could. But really, the only thing that they're going to be able to go on is identifying markers, like very, like surgeries, for example. Right, or tattoos or, or any kind of surgical scars maybe that they had or right. something like that. So after telling Teresa to go home and that they would keep in touch with her, um, you know, obviously, they would keep her informed because they wanted to find her ex-husband. So after telling Teresa to go home and that they would be in touch with her later, they made a discovery when searching the area surrounding the complex. Okay. This is getting good. Complex, the church. The No, the apartment complex where James Matheny oh, lives. Oh, sorry. Okay. No, it's okay. Uniformed officers who had gone over with detectives reported that they had found David Terry's car about 250 feet away from the entry of the apartment. So David Terry's car is at James Matheny's apartment complex. This is getting very weird. Yes. Inside the car, they found David Terry's ID and a towel that had blood on it located under the front seat. They also found fishing rods and a small tackle box in the back seat, along with two beer bottles down at the floorboards. Okay. (sighs) So, now the detectives had a beheaded and mutilated, loved Pentecostal pastor. That that was a tongue twister. And the man that most likely did it was on the run. You're going to think I'm absolutely crazy right now. Okay. You're going to think I'm absolutely crazy. Okay. Why do I get this feeling that this is being pinned on this guy that we can't find? On James. Yeah. That there's somebody else doing it. Yes. And James might be a victim too. I Is that mean, what you're I, saying? I, I, I don't, or that they're I don't just know. pinning it on this but guy. I, I have and, no idea. I, and he I just, just might be out. I think that it is, and where I'm getting this all from is just how, how is it that it's just so convenient that we can't find the frigging guy. Um, his house is undisturbed. Uh, the other dude's car is in his right. I see what you're saying. The breadcrumb trail is too obvious to James Matheny. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I know that sounds nuts, but I, I, that's what I'm thinking right now. Yeah. No, I agree with you. So if David Terry, if David Terry's body is there, James is missing. Could there be somebody else involved that is making it look like James did it? Could there be a third person that maybe took them both out? Who knows? Right. Okay. I don't know. It's a little. It's a little weird. I want to like place a little red flag in that. Okay. The, The car's a red flag too. Right. And with the blood on, it's so obvious, like blood on the towel. Yeah, the and wait, yeah, there. think about that. Why would you go out? Because in my thought process, I'm still going on on the belief that someone thought about taking the head and the arm. Okay, Correct. so why would you do that but leave a bloody towel in the car that you know that they would find eventually? Right. right. So you're trying to get rid of all your evidence, but then you leave obvious evidence. Yeah, it doesn't make bizarre. Sense. So the investigation was now split. The detectives needed to know more about the crime scene, how the fire was started, and what happened to their victim. But they also needed to find out more information about their missing suspect. An APB was put out on James Metheny, and the detectives next had to go back to the church to hear about, you know, what the fire marshal had to say, like the ruling about how the fire was started. As they walked down the main aisle of the church, the fire marshal was kind of pointing things out to detectives and he explained that gasoline had been poured through the pews and this was evident through the alternating dark and light burn patterns that were scattered across the floor of the church basically like you know when you like go to throw gasoline it's black where the gasoline hit and not as dark where it didn't so obviously someone used gasoline as an accelerant to light this church up I just want to say, fire marshals, so cool. It's like you're in. It's. It, I mean, it's like a detective, but with fire. It's so cool. It's like there could be so many different ways that a fire could start, you know. And then you're looking for all these little details. It's so cool. I'm sorry. Fire marshal, a detective, but with fire. But with fire. I know. I'm gonna be quoted on that now. But I'm telling you right now, that's that's so cool. Cool job. It is. In John's perfect life, he would be a sheriff or fire marshal of a small town. I would want to be a marshal. Oh, a marshal. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that was my dream job. But then you'd want to be a sheriff of a small town. You if I didn't say, get the marshal, I'd love to be a sheriff. He always says yeah. that. I would love it. <laughs> but the fire marshal wanted to point out something interesting to the detective. They'd been lucky. Maybe divine intervention. Hmm. The killer had positioned the body in the attic in the front window. And this was a mistake on their part. Because when the firefighters blasted the hose into the attic, they obviously blasted it through the window. And because the body was positioned right under the window, they put the flame out. Okay, so the body didn't burn as much as it should have? Correct. Okay. Yes. Okay. And it was evident that they wanted the body to burn because the trail of gasoline went from the stairs in the attic all the way to the body because nothing else in the attic was necessarily burned. The fire didn't reach there yet. It was just around the body. That's interesting. Yes. And that's why they put the debris over the body because they want it to kind of create, um, trap the heat. Yeah, almost like uh, like you were starting a fire pit. Correct. Right, that's why everything was stacked on top of it. You can't just burn a body. In order to like burn a body... And get the temperature as high as you would need to burn, cremate a body, I guess you could say, is that you do have to create like something that's going to hold the heat in, like a right. tent. Like a furnace. Like Correct. A, like a legit furnace. And that's what 
the fire marshal saying he assumed the killer was trying to do by stacking all that debris on top of the body, but he placed it in the wrong spot and they were able to put that fire out very quickly. That's actually the first location that got the the water. See, but that in itself is also a little methodical. Like that's another step they have taken to try to make this like a, the perfect crime, so to speak. Exactly. there's a lot of thinking here, so I, I, I don't know. This is – I don't know. I'm still on to this. I think that someone's trying to cover something right. here tremendously. And the fire marshal said, like, if this pile, this body and the pile on top of it was maybe, like, three feet to the right, it would have been unrecognizable, and they wouldn't have even known, the like, the stuff was missing until they collected what bones were left. <sighs> so they were like, is this – you have to think because now you have this aspect of the church being involved. So they were like, maybe this was a way that the church was protecting the pastor that preached there. Hmm. I, I think that I think that because you said James had a bad past, right? Yes. And we're going to get into that. OK, because that needs to be investigated, too, because I think that's also being used as another scapegoat here. Yeah. I think you know? so. Like, like, think about this, right? You got this bad guy that you know that he did some not so good things, and now he he found church. He found the church, right? He turns his life around, and people know this about him, and they're using it against him. Also, if James did this and killed the pastor, why would he have just left that car there like that? He would have used that car to get away further and then drop it off. Why drop it off at your house? It's it, it's incriminating. It's stupid. Right. You would have taken that car, as stupid as you are, you would have taken that car to another town, dropped it off, and maybe went on foot. It doesn't make sense. I agree with you. It's pretty crazy. They're using this guy as, as a way of getting uh, – someone else is getting away with this. Okay. So now that they have the fire report, the detectives want to shift gears back to James Matheny. They knew about their victim. Now they needed to learn about their suspect. And for that, they went to Matheny's ex-wife. The morning after the discovery, the detectives were there to talk to Teresa. She told them a very interesting story. She admitted to them that she loved her ex-husband, but she had no choice but to divorce him. Jim, as she affectionately called him, had a problem with alcohol. It had been bad, and at one point she was afraid of him, and she was also afraid of their son growing up in a house with an alcoholic father. But she knew that, despite the disease, his love for her and her son was strong, so that's why she believed that leaving him would be the wake-up call that James would need. But unfortunately, it had not been. It only sent him further into his addiction. But in 1987, when he had hit rock bottom, James chose to reach out to Teresa. He understood that she was very strong in her faith and that it created for her a sense of stability and community. And he wanted to be a part of that again as well, because he had been while they were married. And he thought that maybe it could save him. So he asked Teresa to help him reconnect with the church. And what that meant was reconnecting with their pastor, David Terry. And James always really liked David Terry and his sermons and, you know, what he talked about. 
so he believed that he could help him. And Teresa told the detectives that it had been almost like fate, because when she called David Terry to say, my husband, my ex-husband, James, wants to get reconnected with the church, he, he wants to be involved, will you speak with him? David Terry said, you know what, I was just thinking about Jim, so of course I'll see him. And the two of them from that point on were very close. She believed that really it was David Terry that she credited with helping James get sober and stay sober because he's going to go above and beyond. Not only is he going to counsel him, but he's going to become his his friend and he gets him on his feet in a figurative and literal sense. He gets him an apartment. He pays the first six months of rent for him and says, you know, we need a second handyman at the church. So he helps with that stuff. So he really helps James Matheny. He gives him a second chance at life. And James Matheny was forever grateful to David Terry. And the two became really good friends. And about a few months into their journey together, he asked David Terry to baptize him again. And Teresa says, this is just so wonderful. Like after that second baptism that he had, it was almost like he had this glow about him, this this new lease on life that he didn't want to give up. And he credited David Terry with that. And the two became so close and they were going on a fishing trip together. Okay. So, I mean, that's really all we know about their relationship from the ex-wife. That's really all that we can gather. Yeah. But I just wonder if there's more to it than that. You know, I, I, I don't like, I understand you're a pastor and I understand that you are a man of God and I understand that you are trying to help this person. But I think that sometimes even the best of men and women can be changed in some form. It, you know, we're not perfect people. You right. know, could there be something darker that's hidden? You know, could that's he, a possibility. I, mean, I, I don't know, maybe a fight ensued. I mean, I, I mean, once again, I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I think that like, could he have started drinking again? Maybe, maybe James did do it and they got into a fight and that's what the windup was. Or there's somebody out there that, that, that did this to the both of them. That knew the situation and was taking advantage of yeah. it. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Well, this is why it was all such a shock to Teresa, because she couldn't believe, A, that the pastor was dead, somebody who was very important in her life. And she couldn't believe that her ex-husband would do anything like that. Like She knew how much James loved David Terry right. and how much he wanted to not impress him, but be better for him because he wanted to show how grateful he was for all the help that he was receiving through him in the church. Of course. Yeah. So they told her, okay, we're going to keep you 100% updated. But if you hear from, from your ex-husband, you have to let us know. So that's why they wanted to give her information because they also wanted to receive information. And she was very much on board with the detectives with trying to figure out what the heck was going on here, you know? This is a good case. This is like a really interesting case mm-hmm. here. Hmm. So after the detectives were done with their interview of Teresa, they learned of a tip that had materialized as a result of the neighborhood canvas that had been conducted both the night, like the early morning hours of the fire and that 
subsequent morning. So the first few hours after finding the church was on fire, they canvassed the neighborhood. And there was a family that lived just under half a mile from the church. And a resident of the house said that he had seen a motorcycle start up and leave the parking lot of the church just before the fire. They looked out the window because they saw the headlights were actually going through the window. And the man described the motorcycle as best as he could, but it was pretty far away and it was dark. So they put out an APB for this very vague description of a motorcycle. Did any of them own a motorcycle? Well, that's what they're going to do next. They're going to get a list of motorcycle owners within the area that owned a motorcycle that matched the general description of the motorcycle this person was on. And then they're going to cross check that with the list of congregants of the church. Okay, smart. And this is going to be a really tedious task because a lot of people own motorcycles in the South because that's like they have the weather for it. Right. It's nice. It's a nice form of transportation. Right. So that is going to take a really long time. So while the lists were being searched, the detectives received word that the findings from the autopsy were in. Now, the medical examiner made it clear that the exam had not been easy because of the decapitation. There was no face to identify, and the body had no teeth to check with records. This is a time before DNA, so obviously the first thing they try to do is ID the body using scars or any other kind of identifying markers. So he found a scar from a medical procedure. Okay. The only problem was... The scar did not correspond with the medical records of David Terry. He had never had a surgery in that area. But you know who did? Who? James Matheny. Okay. All right. That's bizarre. Okay. Go go on, please. But at that point, um, the medical examiner only suspected that the body in front of him was not that of David Terry's, but James Matheny's, based on the records he had access to. They needed more proof. So they reach out to Teresa. Oh, my God. What? Okay. Okay. Maybe she could come in and help identify him. Like, I feel like you'd be able to, like, this. if that's your husband, I, I love you. I don't want to put this out in the universe. But even if you were missing your head and your right arm below your elbow, I know it was you. I know your body. Like, we're married. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, no, no, you're right. But I'm just, yeah, but you also have to consider the fact that it's probably badly it's charred and I know, burned. I know. But they, they want to bring her in. And what's really good is that she brought with her x-rays that James recently had done because he was having some issues with his lungs. So they take an x-ray of the body and they compare it with the x-ray that Teresa brought in and it's the same. Get out of here. Get out of here. It's James Matheny. Yeah, but, w- but, but wouldn't the x-ray... Oh, wait, this might sound stupid. But I... but. The lungs obviously were probably inhaling smoke, so wouldn't it be hard to figure out? No, 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 not like, oh. like from the bone structure. All right, I'm stupid. I, I don't know. No, it's okay. It's okay. I'm just trying to make sure that we're talk- We're right here. No. Well, listen. As 
But wait, there's more. In this discovery, a sick realization came over the detectives. Their suspect was actually their victim. And someone had slashed his body. Remember I said there was like pieces of flesh hanging off? Yeah. Because they were removing his tattoos. Oh my God. Parts of his flesh that were missing were where he had his tattoos. And maybe the arm wasn't, maybe the arm wasn't for the fingerprint, but it was maybe a large tattoo that he got taken off. We'll get to the arm later. Oh my God. What? All right, so are we dealing with an actual fact here? Is this actually James? James, one hundred percent, James Matheny. Oh, wow. Okay, okay. And weird, right? That he had the belt buckle. Ah, oh, dude. Ah, oh, dude. Come on. <laughs> what? Okay. This is really good, right? Oh, yeah, it is. So basically, the head, the arm, and the tattoos were removed because they were identifying features of his body. Insane. Wow. This is actually crazy. So the funeral for James Matheny was held in his hometown. Because of the extent of his injuries, the family was forced to have a closed casket viewing and funeral. In the room were various pictures of James with Teresa and their son. And it's so sad because this man, like, was getting his life on track. He was doing so good. And this happened to him. Okay. Is it weird for me to say that I feel like in a lot of the stories that we tell, well, you tell, um, it's always the people that have scratched and clawed their way out of a very dark place. Yeah. And the moment that they come out, something bad happens to them. It's so sad. It is sad. It's very sad. And now that I know that this is indeed him, this is actually really sad. But I do find that that is what happens. And I don't know why. It's like they're almost like a target goes on their back when, when, when someone, you know, gets out of a bad situation. That's why every time something goes good for us, you know, I'm always thinking what's going to happen. And I always have to remind you that the floor is not going to fall out from underneath you. Well, it might. <laughs> I might get murdered and have my Stop. head cut no, off. No, no. <laughs> well, a shared sentiment that day during the funeral of, of James Matheny was that he was a great father. And his own father, unfortunately, had passed away when he was young. And James Matheny knew that he had a rough past that he did have an issue with drinking but he was sober so what he was really looking forward to was building memories with his son that he was unable to have with his own father but now here he'd been taken away from his son at the age of four so it's just sad how history has a twisted way of repeating itself yeah that's a shame you're right So now the question had shifted from where James Matheny was to where David Terry is. Yeah. I was thinking that like, come on, dude, where are you? (laughs) Yeah. So now detectives went back to speak to Brenda Terry to tell her the news. So now imagine this. So they explained that the body that had been found in the attic of the church wasn't David's. I think everybody else involved, all the family members, are being taken for this insane roller coaster ride. Yeah. Of emotions. Because a couple of days earlier, you just found out that your husband's dead. Right. And now you're being told that, uh, well, uh, I don't, we don't think so. Yeah. And so immediately she's relieved. And then she 
quickly switches to concern because she's like, okay, well, maybe he's still alive, but but where is he then? So the theory that they shared with her was that whoever had killed James Matheny might have kidnapped David Terry, um, especially based on the things that had been left in the car outside of Matheny's apartment. They thought they were staging something. Well, I also think there's someone staging something. Yeah. And then an anonymous call comes into the district attorney's office. And this case gets even stranger. The person on the line said that the detectives had to go to the storage locker and they had to go within the next few hours. Those were the details given. And that was it. And this is back when you could make anonymous phone calls. Curious and eager to find out more information, the investigators rushed to the unit. And my thought process is that the person that tipped them off was somebody who worked in the storage unit because they knew they were looking for something. Okay. The storage facility was an outdoor one. So they were given access by the facility manager. And when that garage door to the unit was opened, inside the detectives found the motorcycle they had been looking for. Okay, who's who owns the storage unit? Well, the storage unit was paid for in cash. Back when you could pay for a storage unit in cash. I'm guessing there's rules now that you need to have a name on it? Yes. Okay. The serial number on the motorcycle, though, was there. Okay. So they're going to track the serial number and they trace it back to a local dealership. And the investigators found out that the motorcycle had been sold recently to a man by the name of Jerry Malum. Okay. So that's somebody different. Right. The name was entered into the database, but nothing was found right away. Now, there was like this like archaic database that existed of just um, people that had been no, nothing like co- nothing like we have today. But if anyone had been arrested within the, the vicinity, the area, there was something they could plug into. So, right. So now. Are we dealing with somebody that's never had a crime committed, like they've never committed a crime, and maybe that's a fake name? Well, eventually. Okay. It's it's not just people that have committed crimes. It's anyone. It's kind of like a census database. Oh, okay. So there is no hit, but eventually there was. But there was one problem. Jerry Malum had drowned in 1951 when he was seven years old in a boating accident. Someone stole so his some, identity. Yeah, someone took his identity. Did he? Did this person pay for that motorcycle in cash? They did. It seemed someone had stolen his identity to buy the motorcycle. And the only thing they could do next was try and get a description from the motorcycle dealership or the Social Security office because this person had to have obtained a Social Security card with Jerry Malum's name. But they wouldn't have to because the investigators get another call. And this, this call would make the case even stranger. Okay. It was a local hospital. David Terry had been found and he was alive. What? Why is he in the hospital? What? So just an FYI, all of this has happened in 48 hours. 
This is crazy. <laughs> what? The most wild case of all time. What? Okay. So, the detectives race to Vanderbilt University Medical Center, which is in Nashville, where they were ushered into a room that supposedly belonged to David Terry. But the man they saw in front of them was not the man they thought they were going to find. One of the detectives said that if he passed this man on the street, that he would have never known that it was the person they were looking for. His appearance had completely changed. He had a dark fake tan. His eyebrows had been changed. The facial hair that he always had was shaven and his thick, dark hair was gone. So this, so that he tried to change his identity with any kind of feature that he could. Yep. See, I told you that all this is planned. Like these are all steps that stem from the very beginning when we were learning about this. This is insane. This is crazy. Okay. Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> So their thoughts, meaning the detectives, had been that David Terry was kidnapped. But now, here he was, not looking like he'd been kidnapped, rather looking like he was trying to change his appearance. The detectives asked him where he had been, if anyone hurt him, and if he knew who had killed James Matheny. But Terry refused to speak to the detectives beyond saying that he needed his lawyer. As the detectives drove away, they asked each other, why would he need a lawyer if he wasn't guilty of anything? Like, so now their thought process is, David Terry did this, and we have to find out why. I mean, more than likely, that's that's accurate. But, I mean, to say that, I mean, listen, no. If I was being accused of something or or I was being investigated into for something that I let's let's just say I didn't commit, right? I, I would want my lawyer regardless. I think nine well, times out true. of ten anyone's gonna lawyer up. It's just I feel like that's what you should do. Well, it's very true. But I will say a side note here, and this is something that I kind of read between the lines while I was doing the research on this case was that the family of James Matheny was upset because they were like, well, instantly you were like, he's the killer because of his history and who he was. But because this dude's a pastor and you found out the body was James, you didn't think, oh, the pastor did it. You thought he was kidnapped. Right. Well, that's kind of why I said what I said earlier, because I had a I had an inkling that like maybe there's something more going on here. And even the most holiest of people, something could happen. I mean, like it's getting a little unholy. Getting a little unholy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So the detective spoke with the DA and let them know that they were going to need a search warrant to obviously search the home of David Terry. And they very easily got one from a baffled judge, as you can imagine. who <laughs> was like, what the heck are you guys dealing with over there? While the warrant was being executed, the police found a package with $10,400 stashed away in the top drawer of his bureau, like his dresser. This was a lot of money for a pastor to have. So the detectives, who at this point had arrested David Terry under suspicion of murder, wanted to confront him about the murder. Also, while conducting this search, the police were looking for the four firearms that were registered to David Terry. 
but in the home, they were only able to find three. What was missing was um, his 38. Terry, during an interrogation with his lawyer present, said that he had gotten rid of that gun, but he never reported that he had gotten rid of it. So it was on the very same day that the warrant went through for the church documents as well and the financial records of the Terry family. (gasps) It was bad. Wait, is that motive? Did James find out that David Terry was was embezzling or taking money from the church. And that's why he always had money like that. You're right. Who has just $10,000 in their in their top drawer? He was probably taking it from from the congregation. John, it's even crazier than that. It's crazier than that? Yeah. What? Okay. Okay. So, it was bad. David Terry had been misappropriating funds from the church since 1984. Okay. It was the belief of the detectives that Terry had been embezzling money, and to cover his tracks, he killed Methaney and was basically trying to fake his own death and move on with a new identity. Are you serious? Yes. Now, but it's even more complicated than that, because over the course of the next two years, the district attorney obviously has to build up a case against David Terry. And during the 1989 trial, it was all exposed. Are you ready for it? Yeah. So, David Terry's life changed when his mother passed away. And not in the way that it affects most of us when we lose a parent. He was thinking solely about himself. He began to have this, like, existential crisis about his place in the world and how he had thought he had failed at life, because at that point, he was already embezzling money. He'd been taking money from the church, depositing money into his own account, and on one occasion, he sold church property for a lot of money and put it into the wrong account. Like, he put it into the tithing account and not the general funds, so it was easier for him to siphon out. So during this time, he thought about dying by suicide, but quickly dispelled that idea. He didn't want to die. He wanted to start fresh in another life. He hadn't been happy with his position as associate bishop overseer of the Emmanuel Church. He needed more. And what had happened was he was promised that he was going to get a higher position and it didn't happen. And it's right around the time where he started reading. It's kind of confusing as to like how it came to fruition, but he was reading the Soldier of Fortune magazine. And within the magazine was an ad for an additional magazine that would show an individual, and I quote, how to get lost, how to disappear. So he answered the ad And it showed him ways that he could obtain a new identity. At first, he tried to assume the identity of a dead childhood friend, but had difficulty obtaining some of the documents. So after this, he turned to old newspaper articles. And eventually, he found an article about a seven-year-old boy who had drowned in a boating accident in 1951. Jerry Malam. It explained in the book how to obtain a copy of a birth certificate. And being a pastor, he was able to make a fake baptism certificate. Both documents then allowed him to get a new driver's license and social security card. 
That's crazy. That would never happen today, I don't think. No, no, it, it couldn't. It couldn't. Oh, back then, it was so crazy. You know how hard it was to change my name when we got yeah. married? Oh, you know what? It's like the 80s. It's like, it doesn't even seem that long ago. But like, that's like the Wild West. You could do anything. Yeah. That's kind of, cr- that's actually kind of scary, actually. Uh, it's terrifying. You know how many cases probably like this happened, but the person got away with it? Oh, yeah. So at that point, his plan was going smoothly. He had a new identity. Now all he would have to do is fake his own death. From what I can tell, he believed he was forced into doing this because he was supposed to get the position of bishop overseer of the church. But when the bishop overseer said that he wasn't retiring and he was staying in the position, David Terry felt like his back was up against a wall because if he ever became bishop, all of the money that he stole, he would have been able to hide because he had nobody to answer to. Okay, I see what you're saying. And when he wasn't given that position, it was like, oh, shit, I might be found out. Or if he gives it to somebody else. What a child, though, honestly. Yeah. Like, so you don't get your way, so you kill somebody. And you fake your own death, and you do all these things and put all these people through through hell, honestly. Uh, for what? Yeah. To, to satiate your own weird desire to, like, live your life Start again? Or like what? Again. Like, you're a child. Well, so now he knew that he was going to be faking his own death at this point. And he set his whole plan in motion. It truly is diabolical. First, he wanted to be sure that his family would be set up. His will was set. His wife would receive the home that they owned and $50,000 in life insurance money. His three sons were all to receive equal shares of another life insurance policy that amounted to $100,000. He took from the church $5,000 to buy the motorcycle and another $10,000 to be left in the house. Remember, it was found in the dresser. The wife didn't know about it. Brenda didn't know that money was there. Then he also puts $100 bills in all of their wallets. And then he sets out to do this. He then needed to find, and this is what he would later call James Matheny, his sacrificial lamb. Oh, that's weird. That is so weird. David Terry befriended Matheny, which is so sad because here was this man who needed help. And that's why David Terry was so eager to help him in every way possible. Yep. Because he was going to kill him. So that's so sad. It is. It really is. And really, James Matheny looked up to David Terry and, and appreciated his help. In the months before the murder, Terry paid for six months of Matheny's rent using church funds, of course. Um, he got him a job. They hung out all the time. And that's the thing, too. You hung out with this guy all the time. You knew his family and you were still going to do this. Yep. Because Teresa was a very loyal congregant of this well, it's church. Beca- it's because his life was more important than yeah, James. Yeah, that's what he thought. Yep. Then comes the murder. On the day of the murder, the two men were to go on a fishing trip. Terry picked up Matheny and drove him from his apartment to the church, where Terry told him that he just had to receive um, and return a few phone calls. But he gave Matheny his credit card and told him to go fill up the car with gas and get some supplies. Um, That was when David Terry 
heard James Matheny come back to the church and he he knew that the guy was going up into the attic because he told him, you know, there's some things that just need to be moved around in the attic. And David Terry followed him and shot him in the back of the head. That's so that's 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 so cowardice. Like, it's disgusting. Yeah. And we know that even though the detectives thought that the dismemberment didn't happen in the attic, it did. So he must have had tarps that then got destroyed in the fire. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is all premeditated, the whole entire thing. Yes. Everything, every step. And it's a little conflicting. Um, David Terry's going to say that it was like an hour after the murder that the dismemberment took place. But the medical examiner said based like it could have been minutes after. So we don't know exactly how much time spanned between the murder and the dismemberment. But he used a saw and a large knife to remove the arm and the head. He then undressed the victim down to his underwear and dressed him again in his own clothes. He had gotten clothes from a bag that he stashed in the church days prior. He placed Metheny's clothes in one bag and his body parts in another. He then left the body in the attic of the church while he disposed of the body parts, clothing, and tools that he had used for the dismemberment in various dumpsters and bodies of water. He then purchased two five-gallon cans of gasoline. Terry went to the church to drop off the cans and then went to Metheny's apartment where he staged the car. Inside the car, he left the following items, a beer bottle, a towel smeared with his own blood, which he had withdrawn the previous night from himself. What? Yes. Oh, my God, wait, and I was just thinking, the beer bottles, because he was a recovered alcoholic. Yes. Oh, my God. And it gets even worse. You know how he removed his arm? Yeah. He put the finger, that's why he took the arm. He put the fingerprints on the beer bottles and all of his things inside the car. Oh, man. Yep. So in David Terry's car, there was beer bottles with James Matheny's fingerprints and all over the... The car was his fingerprints because he that's why he took the arm. That is so weird. This is insane. I don't think I've ever heard of someone trying to get with a murder away with murder. So like, like I've never even I don't even have words that this is beyond anything I've ever heard of the planning, the sophistication of it, even though I don't even want to give him that. But I have to because it is so insane that this even is taking place. Yeah. Wow. My mind is blown, Kay. This is a crazy case. Wow. From there, he got a taxi to the storage unit where the motorcycle had been kept. Okay. So he gets a taxi to get the motorcycle because now he's without his car because he left it at Matheny's house. So he went back to the church and this is when he remembered the tattoos So he went back to the church, removed the flesh that had tattoos on it, and he um, flushed the parts of flesh with the tattoos in the toilet. Great. Uh, Then he wrapped the body in the carpet, covered it with debris so it would create high heat so the body would burn faster, and then he used the gasoline 
to set the whole church ablaze. From there, he went to a hotel in Memphis. He paid for two nights and then went to see a double-A baseball game. He knew, though, that he wasn't going to get away with it. And he definitely wasn't going to get away with what happened. So he chose to drive back to Nashville, go to the hospital, and turn himself in. Why did he All th- of that yeah, to but, just turn himself in. But, but why did he think that he wouldn't get away with it? Because he read about like the recovery of the body in the newspaper and that it wasn't as badly burned as he thought it was going to be. So then why go through all that trouble when you could have skipped town? I mean, he he was already doing it. I, I know. Because this, obviously this man's not thinking. Well, he's thinking he's about thinking, it. but not <laughs> thinking. It's yeah. bizarre. This part is very strange. Yeah, I think it was sense. his guilty conscience. Well, maybe because he's supposed to be a man of God and he's everything but. Right. I mean, he literally, look what he did inside of the, uh, you know, the house, house of worship. Of, yeah. It's crazy. So at the conclusion of the trial, a jury found David Terry guilty of first-degree murder and arson. He had been found guilty with two statutory aggravating circumstances. They were, one, that the murder was especially heinous, atrocious, and cruel in that it involved torture and the depravity of mind. And two, that the murder was committed while the defendant was engaged in committing a larceny, the fire. Finding that the aggravating circumstances outweighed the mitigating circumstances, the jury sentenced the defendant, David Terry, to death by electrocution. Ooh, that's, uh, I mean, I don't know. However. Yeah, okay. Oh, boy. The sentence was overturned on appeal when the Tennessee Supreme Court found the jury was not given the proper instructions prior to deliberations based on the aggravating circumstances, particularly the one involving um, committing the murder while also being engaged in a larceny. So that is why it was overturned. But the only part that was overturned was the sentencing. So the death sentence? The death sentence. So that went to a second jury. Okay. Who also sentenced him to die. Oh, okay. In, but that wouldn't happen. In 2003, David Terry, who was scheduled to go to court again for another appeal, um, hanged himself in the bathroom of the maximum security prison that the 58-year-old former pastor was being held in so he died by suicide i mean i think he realized i think that uh no matter what appeal he would have it would be the same uh, yeah. outcome i think you know and you took that man's life only just to then later take your own but i think that that i, I know this is going to sound weird but i think that that is a power move because someone like him doesn't want someone else to be his judgment do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I completely agree. So I think that him doing that is him continually to hold the power to take himself out. Right. Uh, you know, him being the one to do it, to carry out that kind of yeah. sentence. I, I don't know how to explain it the right way, but... No, I get what yeah. you're saying. He's he's giving himself his own justice. Yeah. I, he's I, not allowing yeah. the outside world to do it. Right. Um, I think it's so sad that he called at, during his trial James Matheny his sacrificial lamb. And this man, in every sense of the word, is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Oh, yeah. His affiliation with the church was his disguise. 
And I think yeah. that that is what happens because everyone around him looks at this man as a shining example of what you're supposed to be for your community. But sometimes that is the person that is probably the most um, uh, like he is the most uh, deceptive. deceptive. Yes. Thank you. You know, f- you know, for this to take, you know, to take place in town. So it's, it's so, kind of scary. Like it's terrifying. It's scary. Cause like then, you know, think about it. If someone like this could do that, like, who can you trust? Yeah. Who can you trust? Think about the planning of that. And there was so much planning be able here. to do it, though. He carried it out with a, what seemed like a very cool head. Yeah. The whole time. And this is interesting, too, because I feel like all the cases that we cover help us with the other cases we cover. And a lot of times you hear, oh, but he'd never done anything like this before. So could someone escalate to that? It's like, well, look, this guy had never committed murder before, but here he's able to murder someone who was a friend, decapitate him, cut off his forearm, cut off the tattoos. I mean, people are capable of what they want to be capable of. And to stay calm yeah. and carry it out, I think, and is And then shave his head, give himself yeah. a fake tan. Yeah. Interesting. I, you know, I, I knew something wasn't right because, like, the backstory of the one dude, it, to me, it didn't seem right. I mean, I think I did a good job explaining my thought process yeah, here. Yeah, you were saying it's too obvious. It was just way too obvious to, like, actually not be what it turned out to be. I just thought at one point it could have been maybe a third person that could have done this, and that's why they're both missing. Right. But, I mean, I still thought it was fishy. Something wasn't right. That was a wild one. That right? was that was unbelievable. I didn't I, I didn't see the uh, the bait and switch. Yeah, where it was uh, you know we they we got to believe it was James, but in reality, he was the guy that was in the rug. I do think it's weird that he turned himself in because he knew there was a probability that the body wouldn't burn the way he wanted to, or else he never would have put his own belt buckle on James Matheny. So I don't know what made him do this i mean that's something that is only he will know i mean i think that he had the ability to get away i think that if he wouldn't have turned himself in i mean i think he would have been caught eventually yeah but i think that he could have you know continued (laughs) think about it you're you're talking about somebody who has another identity as well correct so even if he was found you know like you know eventually the body would be tested and and eventually we would have all found out that it was him that did this he was still living under another identity so i i don't know why i guess he will only know why that's true oh insane yeah very very good case sad 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 because you feel terrible for james Matheny and his family absolutely all right whoof that was a lot. Was. But before we go, we just want to say thank you to our new Patreon subscribers. And there's a lot of you, so it's a long list. Please, if I say it wrong, let me know. So we just want to say thank you to Sarah Rysdam, Cheyenne Pierce, Erin Stevenson, Janine Nixon, Joy Lewis upped her pledge, and so did Dana Blake, Brianna Henry, Ella Doherty, Michaela Guider, Marissa Rossetti, Thea Martin, Cheryl Bruins, Ariel Kelly, 
Annie Garcia, Anna C. Brooks, Veronica Garcia, Kirsten, Elin Nielsen, Angela Fisk, Rita Walls, Carrie Kemp, Tony L., Brittany Felicello, Nina Bean, Poppy Gale, Melissa Foreman, April Coles, Kelly Buffone, Grace Dennison, Sam Cochran, Brandy Garza, Tiffany Smith, Jessica Hayes, Tara Carell, Mike Polzin, Britt, Anne Hall, Jordan Alzaharna, Mitch Pad upped his pledge for the whole year. Thanks, Mitch. Isabella Bothwell, Blanca Seal, Kimberly Quintero Lopez, Sarah Story, and Lee Brown. Thank you guys so much for joining Patreon. We hope you're enjoying all of the extra episodes. And until next time, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye. Especially church vans. Absolutely. (laughs) 